1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 to 10. If you are visiting us and you do not own a Bible, it is found on page 1046 in the Pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, please take that as a gift from us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 to 10. There's something very encouraging when you're a mentor or a parent and you hear a good report from others about your mentee or your child. You see, if you serve as a mentor or if you're a parent, you know that you're diligent in seeking to teach and model for your kids or for your mentee the very things that you want them to learn. And you labor towards this very end, and you're hoping that they're getting it. You're hoping that it would stick. You're hoping that when they're not around you, they are living out those very things that you have taught and modeled. And it's so encouraging when you hear the report from others that they are doing well, that they are living out some of the things that you've taught them, that they tell you that you have made an impact on them And it's evident by how they live. It was just last week, my sister, she came into town and she got to talk to my wife and I. And she had this experience. Her son, his name is Ethan, she was told by another parent how he stood up for his friend who was being bullied by some other students. How this one guy was insulting Ethan's friend and Ethan was defending his friend. Combating those insults, the very thing that my sister taught her son, the very thing that my sister lived out before her son, she heard that he is living those things out. Completely unaware, she comes to find out that the things that she is teaching him is sticking. And it resulted in much thanksgiving. She was so excited to share with us, and she was just giving all glory to God, but she, along with that, she was just glad. She herself told us, like, man, you know, because we just don't know the things that we're teaching him is sticking, and she comes to find out from another parent that it is. If you are a parent, if you've experienced it, or if you're a mentor, and you got to experience it, you know how sweet it is, how encouraged you are to hear that kind of report. Well, in this morning's passage, the Apostle Paul will have a very similar experience regarding the Thessalonians. As he went to them, preached the gospel, he saw them repent and believe. As he has been away, he heard how the gospel has transformed the life of the Thessalonians. He was told on the impact that by God's grace he had upon them, and it resulted in thanksgiving. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 to 10. If you're able to, please stand for the reading of God's word. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full assurance. You know how we lived among you for your benefit, And you yourselves became imitators of us and of the Lord, when in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. 
As a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. Therefore, we don't need to say anything. For they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. You may be seated. So our big idea from this morning's passage is this. Because you believe the gospel, live differently. Because you believe the gospel, live differently. And the reason that we are to live differently is because we are different by God's grace. When God saves us, when we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, he gives us a new heart, we have new affections and a new allegiance, and it should result in a transformed life. We go from not loving God to loving him, from being dead to being made alive. That should be evidenced in how we live. And in this morning's passage, I have three scenes for us that we will see. First, we will see the causation of faith. Then we will see the imitation of faith. And third, the exemplification of faith. I know I stressed it with the third one, but I had to keep the Asians. I'm a Baptist. First, the causation, then the imitation, and third, exemplification. And so for a little bit of context, Paul and his companions, they have brought the gospel to Thessalonica. They have preached that Jesus is the Christ that you are to believe in him in order to be saved. And by God's grace, Jew and Gentile have believed that message. And so he planted a church. But immediately after planting a church, persecution arose. They, Paul had to flee. But Paul was concerned about this young congregation. And so he sent Timothy to them to check in on them and to establish them in the faith. Well, Timothy returns with a favorable report. And in last time we were in 1 Thessalonians, we saw Paul, he gives thanks to God for the clear evidence of saving faith. And evidence was seen through how they was living. Their work produced by faith, their labor motivated by love, and their endurance inspired by hope. Well, in this morning's passage, we will see the ultimate cause by which Paul gave thanks to God, the fundamental root of their saving faith was because of God was at work in them, which brings us to our first point, the causation of faith. Look at verse 4. He says, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. The Apostle Paul is continuing in thanksgiving in the first thing, to notice is how he addresses this congregation. He calls them brothers and sisters. They are family. He uses this phrase to refer to this congregation almost 20 times in five chapters. 
emphasizing that they are family. Now, what's mind-blowing is that this congregation does not consist of predominantly Jews, but Gentiles. This is the ramification of being in the new covenant, to where we are a family. You see, in the old covenant with Israel, they were a family, but it was by blood as they were descendants of, they were physical descendants of Abraham. But in the new covenant, it does, it does not depend upon one's blood of being in the family of faith, but one's belief in Jesus Christ, which is why we refer to one another as brothers and sisters, because we are the family of God. He says, what do we know? You are loved by God that he has chosen you. Here, Paul is getting at the ultimate reason for their faith in Jesus Christ and the fruit of their faith. The clear evidence of their saving faith finds its ultimate root in God choosing this congregation. These people, God elected them. They placed their faith in Jesus Christ just like us. But here, Paul is pulling back the curtain to make known of God's sovereign work that preceded faith in Jesus Christ. And that is election, that God chose us. Beloved, the only reason why we believe is because God from eternity past decreed it. Election is God's predetermined choice of some people in Christ Jesus unto eternal life. And this choosing took place before the foundation of the world. You see, God chose us before he even said, let there be. And did you catch the motivation? He says, loved by God. God's love for us is the basis of his election of us. It is not our performance or merit, but his affection. It is not because he saw something within us. It is not because he looked to the future and knew and saw that, that we would believe in him and so he chose us. It is because he chose us because he loved us before the foundation of the world. He says similar things to Israel in the Old Covenant as we read in the scripture reading. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. It says, the Lord had his heart set on you and chose you. Not because you were more numerous than all peoples, for you are the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors. What God said to Israel in the old covenant is applied to the church in the new covenant through our identification with Jesus Christ. He is the true Israel and through faith in him, the church is the covenant community and we are the Israel of God. Beloved, Scripture is clear that God's love for us is the foundation of his election of us. First, not first, but Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us, he chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. God 
loved us and therefore he chose us. Now I understand some of you may be wondering, well, if God's love for us is the basis of his election of us, does this mean that we should assume the opposite for those he doesn't elect, that he doesn't love the non-elect? To which I would say the Lord does love the non-elect. He makes it known, Jesus makes this known in Matthew chapter 5, where he says that he causes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain upon the just and the unjust. In Acts chapter 14, Paul makes known how God gave food to all people and he filled their hearts with joy. What's going on here is with the elect, it is a special kind of love, a covenantal love of choosing his people, similar to how a husband chooses his wife. Or a family chooses to adopt a specific child. Beloved, we are loved by God. He has always loved us. Before the foundation of the world, he has always loved us. He has had us on his mind and heart long before we ever thought of him. He knew our names and wrote them in the book of life before the foundation of the world. And that was in love. It is solely because God's love for us that we love him in response. He has everlasting love upon his people. Paul says, we know, loved by God, that he has chosen you. So the question is, how is it that Paul would know? For the Lord knows those who are his. Election is a secret and mysterious work, and yet Paul says that we know that God has chosen you. Did Paul find God's secret list of elect? Did he get an elect meter? And if so, can we get one from Amazon Prime? Not at all. You see, the reason is that though election, has, though election is God's mysterious and secret work, it has visible effects. Look at verse 5. He goes on to explain how is it that we know. He says, because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power in the Holy Spirit and with full assurance. Paul says, we know because the way you responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ how they preach the gospel that these Thessalonians, they are sinners who have rebelled against a holy and righteous God who has loved them, that they stand guilty of their sin, that they are in need of saving, and that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son who is, is God, became man and died for the transgressions of sinners. That he rose from the grave and all who believe in Jesus will be saved by God's grace. The Thessalonians received that message by faith. And it is how they know. You see, the gospel, it came with power as it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believed. And as Paul and his companions were preaching, the Spirit was working mightily in the hearts of the Thessalonians. It is because God chose them that the Spirit did this regenerating work in them. And where the Spirit went to work removing the heart of stone that will always reject God and replaced it with a heart of flesh. The Spirit did the convicting to where they recognized their own guilt and guilty standing before a holy and righteous God. The Spirit did the convincing 
leading them to know that they need to be saved. The Spirit opened their eyes to know that Jesus is the only Savior. The Spirit gave the gifts of repentance and faith, and of their own volition in response to the work of the Spirit, they joyfully placed their faith in Jesus Christ. You see, it is through the Spirit's work that we receive the gospel as what it truly is, the Word of God. Apart from the Spirit's work, we will always reject Jesus. Because we live in this body of flesh, and a mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. But when the Spirit does a regenerating work, those whom he regenerates, they will always joyfully respond to the gospel. Paul says that they have visible assurance. He says they have uh, with full assurance. This full assurance is because of visible evidence of them receiving Jesus and believing in their lives being changed by the grace of God. And beloved, we speak with such confidence of one another. When you think about church membership, we are saying that we believe that everyone who's a member of Midtown Baptist Church, by God's grace, have made a credible profession of faith. We're saying that we believe that there is evidence of the Spirit's work in your life and there is good fruit. And so when we bring someone into membership, we say that they're a Christian. Therefore, we're saying that we believe that God has chosen them. And not only that, it's all the more why we need to continue by God's grace to bear good fruit holding fast to the gospel and growing and conforming to the likeness of Jesus. You see, beloved, a firm belief in the doctrine of election is to not lead to laziness in sanctification. But we should be all the more making every effort to confirm our election by holding fast to Jesus. Notice, in verses 4 and 5, we see election and evangelism. Oftentimes, people try to throw assaults to people who believe in election, saying that you guys don't evangelize, but here we see that those two go together. You see, election doesn't stifle evangelism. Instead, it stokes it like fan to a flame. And the reason is because it guarantees that by God's grace, there will be conversions from the preaching of the gospel. Paul makes this known in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead and descended from David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer to the point of being bound like a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. This is why I endure all things for the elect, so that they may also obtain salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Beloved, evangelism is the means by which that God saves the elect. Those people cannot believe unless they hear, and they cannot hear unless someone preaches. This is to free us up to clearly and faithfully preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we do it, relying not upon our words, but upon the work of the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes, people are reluctant to evangelize, and some of us included, because we're putting so much pressure on ourselves. We think that it is on us to do the convicting and the convincing and we're fearful that they may ask a question that we may not know the answer to. And so because we don't know all the answers, we just won't share out of fear. 
Beloved, if that is where you are thinking, I would have to remind you that, man, when we think that way, we have a misplaced burden. It is not on us to do the convicting or the convincing. Our responsibility is to do the preaching. And as we faithfully do that by God's grace, we can trust that the Spirit will do that work in the hearts and lives of people. Beloved, we can't change people's hearts, but the Holy Spirit does. He is the heart surgeon, and he is the sanctifier. We are his messengers. We do this in our gathering, which is why you see in the pastoral prayer, before we preach, what are we praying? That the Spirit would go to work in us. And we are to do this in our scattering. As we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, by his Spirit, we pray that the Spirit would do what we ourselves cannot do. Some of us, as we hear this, we've been faithful in proclaiming the good news of Christ to our family and our friends. We've been praying. We hear, you know, of election and that God has chosen us. And because we haven't seen people we're sharing with respond with repentance and faith, we may even begin to despair. Beloved, if that is you, let me encourage you to keep praying and keep sharing. A hard heart is not too hard for God. Not only that, but God has not set a universal standard age by which the elect will be saved. He only guarantees that the elect will be saved. Whether they are young or on their deathbed, they will respond to the gospel with repentance and faith. And not only that, beloved, may we think about our own stories Many of us did not respond to the gospel with repentance and faith the first time we heard it. But by God's grace, we did. Think about the Apostle Paul. When he first heard the gospel in the book of Acts, he ended up having Stephen killed. And yet, later on, God in his grace saved Paul. So may we have hope. May we not lose hope. While there is breath in the lungs of those who don't know Jesus, there is still hope for repentance. 17th century pastor, George Mueller, faithful preacher, fervent prayer warrior. He had five friends who did not know Jesus. And this man prayed fervently for years for God to save them. He saw, his first, he saw one of the five be converted Many years after he was praying, years to come, he saw his second and third and fourth. By the time he died, four of his friends were saved. And after he died, by God's grace, the fifth one repented and trusted in Jesus. Beloved, may we not lose hope for those who don't know Christ. May we pray fervently and preach diligently, trusting and believing that God can save Here we see that election is the causation of faith in Jesus. It is God's saving work that he does within us that leads us to place our faith in Christ. And we've seen the causation of faith. Now let's look at the imitation. Look at verse 5. He says, you know how we lived among you for your benefit. The gospel impacts how we live. 
beloved, God in his grace, the grace of God that saves us is a grace that sanctifies us, that leads us to joyfully submit to the lordship of Jesus in every area of our lives. You see, we don't compartmentalize his lordship. By his grace, we respond to his gospel saying, I am yours. You are Lord over all of my life. And we have this response because we love Jesus in response to his love for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 would say, for the love of Christ compels us. Since we have reached this conclusion that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for the one who died for them and was raised. Paul says that you know how we lived among you. Their living gave credibility to their message. You see, through Paul's life, the Thessalonians had witnessed firsthand how the gospel impacts every area of our lives. They saw how Paul loved God and neighbors, how Paul cared for the poor, how Paul exercised self-control, how Paul pursued purity and endurance. This is life on life in the context of a relationship with members in your church. Beloved, this is discipleship. And not only did they watch Paul, Paul goes on in verse 6. He says, and you yourselves became imitators of us and of the Lord. This is the goal of discipleship, Christ-likeness. It is God's goal for us to be like Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 says that he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. Jesus Christ is the only one who ever walked this earth who perfectly loved God and man all the time. And God is recreating us in the likeness of Jesus. This is God's goal for us to be like Christ. And one of the means by which it happens is discipleship. Which is what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 1. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. The goal for all of us who have placed our faith in Jesus is to be like him. We want to be like Christ. In 1992... There's a famous Gatorade commercial about Michael Jordan, MJ, the greatest of all time. And in the commercial, everyone, men, women, children, boy and girl, they sought to imitate MJ from the shoes to the shot to the moves. It was evident that they studied Jordan. I'm about to say Jesus. It was evident they studied Jordan's game. (laughs) And then not only did they study, but they went out and imitated it. And throughout the commercial, there was a little famous song, If I Can Be Like Mike. Beloved, that is how we are to be in regards to being like Jesus. Studying his life, beholding him through the scriptures with eyes of faith and seeking to become like him. 2 Corinthians 3 gets at this, which says, we all with an unveiled face, are looking as a mirror in the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. As we behold Christ by God's grace, we begin to become more and more like him. 
in character and in conduct. This imitation is to be evident by God's grace because he has saved us. So therefore, we love him and we are to want to be like him. And one way that we grow in imitation of Christ is that we follow brothers and sisters who are more mature in the faith. This is intentionally seeking to get time with fellow members in the body, pursuing them, asking, can I get on your schedule? Can I get time with you? Not just to study the Bible, but man, I want to be around you and watch how you, if you, if you are a parent, I want to watch how you parent. If you're married, I want to watch how you're married. I want to see, man, brothers and sisters who are single, I want to see how you live out your faith and your interactions with others. I want to see how you live out your faith and your interaction with your neighbors. I want to see how your faith informs everything you do. I want to learn from you and how you study the scriptures. The times that you pray and how you pray. It is that type of imitation. And beloved, to ask a fellow brother or sister that question to be able to seek to get time with them like that, that's not being abrasive. That's seeking to grow. And that's encouraging. And not only that, but brothers and sisters who are mature, we're to be intentionally seeking to labor towards the maturity of others in the body. Having them get time with us, inviting them into our homes, doing life on life. The reality is, if we're going to do this, we need to have margin in our schedules. And that's one of the great hindrances to this type of discipleship within the body. We're constantly filling up our schedules to the brim and not making time to do stuff like this. Well, beloved, I would remind us that this type of discipleship, this life on life, it is a worthy investment to pour into others. And those who are mature... It is not a prideful thing to ask people to follow you as you follow Jesus. It's seeking to be helpful. It's seeking to labor towards Christ, them growing in the Lord Jesus. So as we pursue imitation of Christ in these ways, by God's grace, we will gradually grow in the likeness of Jesus. To where we'll be more loving, more holy, more prayerful more humble, more pure, more patient, caring for the poor, quicker to forgive, slower to anger, intentional with others. Beloved, what Christian wouldn't want to be like this? By God's grace, it is possible as we imitate Christ and as we imitate the faith of those who are mature. The reality is all of us are imitating someone. We imitate those who we look up to. The question to consider is, is that imitation resulting in growing in Jesus? One way the Thessalonians imitated Paul and the Lord was by enduring persecution. Look at verse 6 again. And you yourselves became imitators of us and of the Lord... When, in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. Our Lord was despised during his earthly ministry. He was not championed but crucified. Paul himself, he was persecuted for preaching Jesus. This church witnessed that persecution. 
and they also experienced the same affliction. And the reason is because that society was polytheist. They believed that there are multiple ways to God. When the Thessalonians, when they got converted, they began to say that coexist doesn't exist. That there's only one way to God. You see, that society, they confessed that Caesar was Lord. And the Thessalonians preached that Jesus is Lord. That society was marked by debauchery and immorality. And by God's grace, the Thessalonians, they practiced holiness and self-control. So they were hated and they were afflicted by the people. And beloved, the reality is, as we are faithful to the Lord, that will be our very same experience. As we faithfully follow Jesus and are unashamed about our faith in Christ, the world will not applaud us. Instead, they will persecute us. There are real benefits, eternal benefits to faith in Jesus that we get to experience in part. And there are also real temporary consequences for our faith in Jesus Christ. We will be afflicted. Suffering is, it is an expected component of discipleship. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also suffer for him. They were like our Lord. As Jesus endured the cross and despised the shame for the joy that was set before him, this local congregation had joy in the midst of their affliction on account of Jesus. And they endured it with great joy as they rejoiced in their salvation because they have Christ. And beloved, we can be the same way when we suffer for Jesus. When we suffer for Christ, it's important for us to know that our suffering for Jesus is not an indicative of God's love for us or how God feels about us. He made it known in the passage that we are loved by God. Instead, it is indicative of how the world feels about Jesus. And as we identify with him, we will suffer like him. As we're unashamed of our faith in Christ, the world will respond by seeking to publicly shame us. But, beloved, we can rejoice because we have Jesus. He is ours. His spirit dwells within us, testifying that we belong to him. We can rejoice because the world didn't give us this joy, so the world can't take it away. We can rejoice because we know that Jesus is worth it. He is worth every affliction, every assault and insult on account of his name. We can rejoice because we know that one day we will experience eternal relief where he will bind up all of our wounds and that we will be with our beloved king who bled for us. Not one who suffered for Christ who's in glory would say that they regretted suffering for Jesus. Beloved, remember that Christ is worth it. As we imitate him, we will suffer like him, and it will end with us reigning with him. To this congregation, they imitated the faith of this mature of Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and it resulted in them imitating Christ. And such imitation will result in being an example for other brothers and sisters. 
which brings us to our third point, exemplification. Look at verse 7. Paul says, as a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. They patterned their lives after Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and it resulted in the imitators being imitated by other brothers and sisters in that area. Throughout Greece, both Macedonia and Achaia, that is pretty much Greece, the country, and these brothers and sisters were examples for those Christians. The brothers and sisters were blessed by this congregation. They were spurred on by how this congregation lived and preached the gospel. They were strengthened by the message and lifestyle of this church. Y'all, and this should encourage us that God, by his grace, can use us mightily to encourage and spur on fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. That we could be an example to other churches in the city of Memphis and abroad by God's grace as we are faithful and loving and caring for the saints, as we are hospitable towards people in our midst, as we are praying for other churches throughout the city, as we go and join other churches and seek to be faithful and model members there by God's grace. The Lord could use that to spur them on all the more. This young congregation, they were example to other believers in the faith, which testifies to us that being an example in the faith is not contingent upon how long you follow Jesus, but how close you follow Jesus. And the reason why I say this is because this congregation is young. Paul was only with them for a couple of months, if that. He wasn't with them anymore. He longed to see how they were doing, and yet he hears that this congregation is being an example to other brothers and sisters. Some Christians have been Christians for a very long time, and yet they're still babes in Christ. Or there are other Christians who've been a Christian for only a few years, and by God's grace, they're an example of maturity. As they are studying the word, applying the word, being committed to the gathering, having good discipleship. Applying God's word to their lives, being an example to other brothers and sisters. Beloved, this should encourage us as a young and small congregation that we can be an example in the faith to others. The reality is that the church comprises of its members. And so if we're going to be an example corporately, it requires for us to intentionally seek to be maturing individually. So the question to consider is, could your life be used as a mature example of what it looks like to faithfully follow Jesus? If members patterned your way of life, would they be growing in Christ? Would they be growing in being a godly brother or sister, a godly friend, a classmate, a child, a spouse, a parent. This causes for us to examine our own selves. The reality is Christians in churches are always being an example. The question is what kind of example are you setting? One for people to avoid or one for people to follow? And that's contingent upon how close we're following Jesus how faithful we are. 
One way this congregation was an example was in evangelism. Look at verse 8. He says, For the word of the Lord rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. You see, they received the gospel, and now they are preaching the gospel. The very message that they heard, they believed, is the message that they're proclaiming. They went throughout Thessalonica, they went throughout Macedonia and Achaia, and they preached Jesus because they loved him and their neighbors. They wanted people to believe in Jesus Christ. Man, I pray that we would be zealous for evangelism in our gathering and our scattering. That we would be intentional in telling the story of God's love to others beckoning them to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, inviting them to attend the corporate gathering. Beloved, I pray that we will be an example of evangelism. I don't know about you, but oftentimes when a Christian seeks to evangelize me, it encourages me greatly. I'm so encouraged that they care about my soul and want me to know Jesus. I'm not annoyed when a brother or sister seeks to evangelize me because they don't know whether or not I'm a Christian. In fact, I'm spurred on to want to evangelize all the more. The fan is flamed. The the flame is fan, my bad. (laughs) Made more sense in my head. (laughs) Well, beloved, may we be that way for other brothers and sisters, though. To what we are zealous for people to know Jesus. To our other brothers and sisters, they see us, they hear, they recognize, man, we want people to know Christ and those who are in the faith. It spurs them on to want to tell others about Christ. Paul makes known that this church's reputation preceded them. That news about them preaching the gospel and their living has spread like wildfire. For they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you. You see, the gospel advanced in certain areas, and Paul heard it. He heard the report, and people are telling Paul the kind of impact that Paul had upon this congregation. It encouraged Paul like a mentor would hear or like a parent would hear. I'm assuming like Harvest Church, I would hope they would hear if they would hear about us as they planted us. But what's the report? Verse 9. How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Paul heard of the sincerity of their conversion when they believed in Jesus. Their lives were changed. They didn't add Jesus to their pantheon of gods and made more syncretism. Instead, they severed their allegiance from those false idols, those false gods. They were convinced that they were lifeless. And they confessed that God is the one true God. They committed themselves to him and trusted in him. There was an about face, a change of mind and action and will from self and living for self to living for God. Beloved, this is a description, a beautiful description of what repentance and faith looks like. It is a turning from being devoted to self and other things to being devoted to God, from serving self to serving God. For your whole life is now oriented around Jesus, 
because he is your Lord in response to what he has done for you. You believe and you love him by his grace to where now you want to live for him. This is obedience brought about by faith. And this isn't only true of the Thessalonians, but it's true of all of us who have placed our faith in Jesus. You see, repentance and faith, it is the right response to the gospel of Christ. It is required upon all without distinction. It is so simple that a child can do it and so necessary that none are saved apart from it. It is an ongoing lifestyle, not a one-time thing. You see, in verse 9 and 10, that phrase, to serve and to wait, it is in the present tense. Like, this is just how they lived in response to the gospel, constantly serving Jesus, constantly waiting on him because they love him. And this is how we are to live. As we placed our faith in Christ, and we convicted of our sins, as Pastor John prayed in the prayer of confession, we confessed that we turn away from it, and we continue to serve God by his grace, knowing that we are forgiven and cleansed. They worked and they waited. Now, who did they wait on? For the Son, our Savior, the one who came to save us from God's righteous judgment that we deserve for our rebellion, the penalty from the transgressions, this coming wrath that is coming, Jesus has rescued us from. Pastor John, in the past two weeks, faithfully and clearly preached on the coming wrath that humanity deserves for our rebellion against a holy and righteous God. What God in his grace has done is he sent his son who is God and who is with the Father. He became man, perfectly obeyed, and he took the punishment that we ourselves rightfully deserve. Dying on the cross in place of sinners to atone for our sins. And three days later, he was raised bodily, exalted at the right hand, and he now reigns, and he delivers all who trust in him. And so if you know yourself to not be a Christian, friends, I am glad that you are here. I want you to know that there is an invitation for you today to repent and believe and be forgiven, be saved. The wrath that you are deserving, you can be rescued from by trusting in Jesus. God in his love sent his son to save sinners. Today, I would implore you to believe in him and be saved by God's grace. Beloved, Jesus has rescued us from wrath. His saving work has changed us. It's why all the more Paul could be confident in their election because there is good fruit being displayed. And that transforming work is to be true for all who trust in Jesus. He has transformed us by his grace. He will one day return, and when he does, we will be forever and completely changed, freed from sin and being with our Savior. Until that day come, may our lives be marked with serving the Lord and waiting upon him until that day where we see him. Let's pray.